you're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. What's the endocannabinoid system? I would say that it's at the bottom of a pyramid and everything else, neuro, neurological system, cardiovascular system, immuno, immunological system, all of those are stacked on top of it. And therefore, that foundation endocannabinoid system affects everything that's sitting on top of it. Up until this episode, we've spent time exploring some of the potential risks of cannabis, as well as some of the potential therapeutic applications of cannabis. But how does cannabis actually affect the body? This was the question that researchers in the early 20th century were asking when they began a pursuit to systematically study the constituents of cannabis in order to understand what about cannabis got people high. Little did these researchers know that they would end up being part of one of the most fascinating medical discoveries of the past century, a physiological system that might just be one of the core foundational systems in the human body, affecting everything from appetite to mood to immune system response, sleep, and a lot more. And all along it was hiding in plain sight. Cannabis helped us discover it, and now medical science is trying to understand what to do with it. In this episode, we ask, how does cannabis affect the body, and what's the endocannabinoid system? Hey everybody, I'm Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. In this episode, we begin trying to tease apart how cannabis actually affects the body, by exploring the primary physiological system that cannabis affects, called the endocannabinoid system. And to guide our curious quest, we'll be tackling several primary questions. 1. How was the endocannabinoid system discovered? 2. What are the components of the endocannabinoid system and what do they do in the body? 3. How do THC and CBD-rich varieties of cannabis affect the endocannabinoid system? And four, what's in store for the future of the endocannabinoid system? So let's get started. The story of the discovery of the endocannabinoid system goes back nearly 150 years ago, when more sophisticated systematic research into cannabis was just beginning to take place in the mid to late 1800s. Researchers were taking notice of cannabis's medical as well as recreational effects and wanted to understand how cannabis worked. So they gave cannabis to animals and people. <coughs> and studied what happened. Eventually, researchers began trying to isolate components of cannabis in an effort to identify the primary active component of cannabis that's responsible for a lot of its effects, at least the effects that researchers were aware of at the time. In 1964, researchers in Israel hit the jackpot when they isolated THC and discovered that it got dogs high. This triggered a series of research experiments to try and determine why THC got the dogs and people high. There must be some mechanism in the body that was responsible for these effects. But it really wasn't until 1988 that researchers discovered their first chemical receptor in the body that THC interacted with. This would later be identified as the cannabinoid type 1 receptor, or, as you might know it, the CB1 receptor. 
A year later, the chemical structure of the CB1 receptor would be characterized, and it would be later discovered that CB1 receptors were actually the most abundant chemical receptor of its type in the brain by far. And yet, up until the late 1980s, researchers had no idea it existed. Talk about hiding in plain sight. And CB1 receptors are not just limited to neurons. They're found all throughout the body, even in the skin. Researchers then began to ask an important question. Why do these chemical receptors exist in the body in the first place? In 1992, researchers would begin to uncover an answer with the first discovery of a cannabinoid endogenous to the human body, which researchers would later name anandamide, or the bliss molecule. It was discovered that anandamide and THC behaved very similarly in the body, and that when someone ingests THC, that THC is basically able to take advantage of the series of chemical receptors in the body that are normally reserved for anandamide. And as researchers would later discover, there are a host of other endogenous cannabinoids also produced by the body that are influencing these cannabinoid receptors. Now, I want to clarify a point here. It's often claimed that the existence of cannabinoid receptors in the human body is evidence that the human body is somehow designed for cannabis. But this really is simply not true and a misrepresentation of the science. Although humans and cannabis have co-evolved for thousands of years together, the endocannabinoid system is not designed for exogenous cannabinoids. It just so happens that cannabinoids and cannabis are similar enough to our own endogenous cannabinoids that our bodies make that they can interact with those same receptors in much the same way that other drugs elicit effects in the body. For instance, tryptamine-based psychedelics like psilocybin from magic mushrooms and DMT from ayahuasca elicit their effects because they are similar enough to other endogenous neurotransmitters like serotonin that are in our bodies, and so they can interact with those chemical receptors in our body. But that doesn't mean that our bodies were designed to interact with these compounds. Now, back to our history lesson. Now, a year later in 1993, a second receptor was discovered that THC interacted with. This would go on to be called the cannabinoid type 2 receptor, or CB2 receptor, real creative. The CB2 receptor is now known to be located all throughout the body, heavily on immune system cells, but also in neurons and other places. And it'd later be proposed that CB2 receptors may form a critical system in the body that actually helps protect cells and tissues from damage. Then in 1995, another endogenous cannabinoid, or endocannabinoid as I'll call it from here on out, would be discovered. And this second endocannabinoid that was discovered would be called 2-AG, or 2-arachidonoglycerol. Funny enough, it would later be discovered that 2-AG is actually far more abundant in the body than anandamide, but I guess since 2-AG was the second endocannabinoid discovered, it didn't really get a fancy name like anandamide did. So while anandamide is often the most commonly cited endocannabinoid, 2-AG probably deserves a lot more attention. Now, at this point in history, it was beginning to be clear to researchers that they were piecing together some complex system or network in the body that was continuing to grow in complexity the more that they studied it. It was in the year 1998 that the concepts of endocannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system were first presented to the public. And now, over 20 years later, 
the endocannabinoid system has continued to evolve and astonish researchers. But what does the ECS actually do? In 1998, when the ECS was first formally described, it was hypothesized that the functions of the endocannabinoids in the body were to help the body, quote-unquote, relax, eat, sleep, forget, and protect. Now we know that this picture is actually quite a bit more complex. The endocannabinoid system is really fascinating. I, I look at look at it as as a lipid signaling network that if we were to diagrammatically look at it, I would say that it's at the bottom of a pyramid and everything else, neuro, neurological system, cardiovascular system, immuno, immunological system, all of those are stacked on top of it. That's Kevin Spellman, a researcher that's been spending a lot of his time trying to understand how compounds like those in cannabis interact with the endocannabinoid system and with cannabinoid receptors like CB1 and CB2 receptors. And therefore, that foundation endocannabinoid system affects everything that's sitting on top of it. So it has this huge role in signaling throughout the body. And I think that's really, really key. And so it's so much more than just the enzymes that are, that are synthesizing and mm-hmm. breaking down cannabinoids and the uh, receptors that, that are directly considered uh, uh, cannabinoid receptors such as CB1, CB2. There's, you know, now there's a putative CB3. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, it looks like there's probably a CB4 and a CB5 at this point, but it's too early to actually call them that. But there are a lot of compounds that, uh, excuse me, there are a lot of receptors that actually bind our endocannabinoids as well as the um, exogenous cannabinoids in, in our body. Yeah, and are you referring to like a lot of those G-protein coupled receptors? Yeah, um, GPCRs, exactly. Yeah. And then you've got the ion channels that are coupled to receptors. So the, the whole trip receptor system is really fascinating and um, makes a huge difference in terms of pain and sensation um, as well as, uh, you know, just gut health mm-hmm. and, and uh, neurological health. And so there's, yeah, it's, it's a very pleiotropic uh, system that affects so many different subsystems or tissues throughout the body. The endocannabinoid system is the master homeostatic right. regulator of physiology. That's Dr. Ethan Rousseau a neurologist and cannabinoid researcher that initially proposed the idea of clinical endocannabinoid deficiency back in the early 2000s. What does that mean? Well, physiology is how things work in the body. Um, Generally, uh, you need a certain level of activity, neither too high nor Mm -hmm. too low. And that's precisely what the endocannabinoid system does, is try and keep things in happy balance. Uh, So if a system is overactive, it tends to bring it down. If it's underactive, to bring Mm -hmm. it up. This works through complex mechanisms. We have endogenous chemicals within called endocannabinoids, uh, specifically 2-arachidonoglycerol, 2-AG for short, and anandamide. Anandamide in particular closely resembles THC. Both are partial agonists, Mm at uh, the CB1 receptor, the main psychoactive receptor in the brain and elsewhere throughout the body. Um, And what this does at the brain level is uh, actually reduce the release of neurotransmitters. So if we have a glutamate uh, neuron Mm -hmm. uh, that's stimulatory, 
the reduction in the release of glutamate will lower that activity. Good example of why that's important is, uh, well, we'll give two. Glutamate um, activity tends to be excessive in neuropathic pain, nerve-based pain. So if we have a person with chronic neuropathic pain, um, we can either raise their anandamide level or supply exogenous THC and bring that glutamate level down. And uh, that's going to help with pain. Similarly, in uh, brain injury, whether it be trauma, uh, stroke, or things of that sort, we get an excessive release of glutamate. It can be so bad. Uh, there can be so much glutamate that it produces an excitotoxicity mm -hmm. that the cells actually stimulate themselves to death. Uh, we have situations in which people suffer a head injury. Um, they might seem okay briefly and then rapidly deteriorate over 48 hours. And some of that effect is from this excitotoxicity from glutamate. If we're able to supply drugs like cannabidiol or THC early enough, uh, some of that can be prevented and uh, have a much better result mm -hmm. clinically. Um, so those would be examples. The ECS is often characterized as consisting of three primary parts. The endocannabinoids, the cannabinoid receptors, and then the enzymes that produce and break down those endocannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors. However, modern research is really shattering this concept. We now know that there are many different endogenous cannabinoids in the body that really haven't gotten much attention in mainstream media. One, for instance, is called in arachidonyl dopamine. I bet you've never heard of that one before. Additionally, there are more cannabinoid receptors than CB1 and CB2 receptors. There are numerous yet-to-be-named chemical receptors in the body that are the same receptor type as cannabinoid receptors. They're called G-protein-coupled receptors. And both endocannabinoids and exogenous cannabinoids like THC and CBD seem to interact with these receptors. The most common example of this is a receptor called GPR55. There are numerous others like GPR18, GPR35, the list goes on. And it's highly likely that one day at least some of these receptors will be referred to as the CB3, CB4, and perhaps even a CB5 receptor. We also know that cannabinoids actually interact with a lot of different chemical receptors in the body besides the classical cannabinoid receptors. CBD is a great example of this. CBD hardly interacts with CB1 or CB2 receptors at all. Instead, CBD interacts with a host of different chemical receptors like adenosine receptors, serotonin receptors, vanilloid receptors, and PPAR gamma receptors, just to name a few. Additionally, CBD can stimulate the production of endocannabinoids in the body, potentially causing indirect stimulation of cannabinoid receptors like CB1 and CB2 receptors. So the, the endocannabinoid system is a very complex thing, and its definition is starting to get a little hazy as we learn more about it because it overlaps with so many other chemical signaling systems in the body. The discovery of the ECS and its connection to all these different parts of the body have help doctors better understand why cannabis may be producing some of its therapeutic effects in patients. It turns out that different cancer cells, for instance, upregulate the production of different types of cannabinoid receptors in different tissues. So understanding what diseases are going to affect the ECS in different ways can help doctors understand 
what cannabinoids might be effective in treating those disease conditions. Endogenous cannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors are critical components of the immune system, controlling the release of certain types of chemicals in the body called cytokines, which can trigger pro- or anti-inflammatory responses in the body. While studying how cannabinoids affect pain, a radical discovery was made about cannabinoids. If you will, imagine that the chemical signaling in the body flows like a river, in one direction. Typically, when neurons communicate with one another, the signal can only flow one direction. However, cannabinoids are able to do something very profound. Cannabinoids can actually travel backwards, against the current, if you will, to affect signals coming from a neuron upstream. In this way, cannabinoids are actually able to essentially change the current of this river of chemical signaling. Cannabinoids can slow the waters down by dampening the signaling, or they could speed the current up, enhancing the signaling. Another way I like to think of this is that cannabinoids are able to help turn the volume of signaling in the brain up and down. If that signaling is a pain signal, then turning the volume down could be very therapeutic. Understanding the ECS also helped explain some of the classic THC-rich cannabis side effects. For instance, there are a lot of CB1 receptors located in the hippocampus of the brain, which is a part of the brain that does a lot of work associated with memory. Now, it's no surprise that when CB1 receptors are affected, as they are when THC is consumed, memory would be affected in some way. Additionally, cannabinoid receptors are associated with saliva production. While some people believe that smoking is responsible for the dry mouth effects of cannabis, this is actually not the case. Dry mouth is caused by cannabinoid receptors. Additionally, cannabinoid receptors are also intimately associated with appetite and hunger satiation. In a research study with rodents, it was found that if CB1 receptors in infant rodents were not stimulated within the first hours of life, the rodents wouldn't feed, and they'd suffer what is often referred to as wasting syndrome. Eventually, these rodents would just die from being malnourished. And it's the same kind of effect that's responsible for producing the munchies in THC-rich cannabis users. CB1 receptors are intimately linked to that appetite signaling. But with everything we know about the ECS, there's still a ton that we don't know. For instance, we still don't understand how to appropriately measure the state of somebody's endocannabinoid system in order to determine whether a cannabis or cannabinoid therapy will be effective for treating a medical condition that someone may have. In 2001, it was proposed that endocannabinoid system deficiencies might be responsible for some medical conditions like fibromyalgia, migraine, and irritable bowel syndrome. But without a solid way of measuring someone's endocannabinoid system tone, it's really hard to study this idea of underlying endocannabinoid system derangements. If the endocannabinoid system can be deficient, then it could also be overactive, which might lead to issues like excess hunger and possibly even diabetes. And there are some other effects that an overactive endocannabinoid system could cause, including things like depression. Endocannabinoid tone is uh, an important concept, but we don't have good ways of mm -hmm. measuring it. Right. The three important aspects are how much of the endocannabinoids are present. Second is, what's the activity of the receptors? Mm -hmm. If someone is using THC at high doses recreationally, 
the receptor number will actually go down. Mm -hmm. It's the brain and body's way of trying to keep things on an even keel. So the receptors become inactive. When they stop, they'll reactivate. Um, so there is the number and status of the receptors. Mm -hmm. There is the amount of the endocannabinoids. And the third part is what is the activity of the enzymes that make the yeah. endocannabinoids and break them down? Um, so unfortunately, we don't have ways of measuring this directly, uh, except with invasive techniques, mm -hmm. such as doing a lumbar puncture or yep. spinal tap to measure anandamide levels. But that's invasive. It's not something you can do on an experimental basis mm -hmm. uh, with most uh, ethics committees, for example. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, ideally, in the future, we would have scans, non-invasive methods of trying to assess endocannabinoid tone, but that's a dream for the future right now. And one thing I want to point out here is that modulating the ECS to affect health doesn't really have to be about cannabis at all. In fact, the discovery of the ECS actually begins to carry us away from cannabis as we learn how other things affect the ECS. For instance, it was recently discovered that several common flavonoids found in plants and fruits interact directly with the ECS. A common component of many plant essential oils called beta-caryophylline was found to directly interact with CB2 receptors and now is being called a dietary cannabinoid. Interestingly enough, many years ago, humans were actually exposed to a lot more beta-caryophylline in their diets because corn, of all things, was once very rich in this oil. But over time, through intensive breeding and farming practices, this component of oil was nearly bred out. Then in the early 21st century, researchers actually discovered that corn rich in beta-caryophylline is actually more pest resistant. And this motivated farmers to grow corn that's more rich in this oil, and potentially we'll see this dietary cannabinoid become abundant in our diets once again. Now, one can't help but wonder what the potential health ramifications have been for humans over the past hundred years if our food has been purged of these botanical constituents that interact directly with such an important bodily system as the ECS. Now, additionally, from things like flavonoids and uh, certain oils and plants that interact with ECS, there are other things like physical activity that stimulate the ECS. The paramount lifestyle approaches that would affect the system would be first aerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. um, we've got good data, especially from animals and limited in humans that show that um, you improve your endocannabinoid tone and uh, overall well-being through aerobic activity. Uh, humans weren't designed to be sedentary mm -hmm. as is prevalent in modern society. And the other one, uh, which seems to be taking on more and more importance, is the microbiome, hmm. the bacterial content of the gut. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the ills of modern society are nutritional in origin. We're seeing a huge increase in uh, things such as the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes associated with obesity. Uh, again, this is not normal uh, in human populations. In contrast, um, we're seeing a situation in which uh, the American diet in particular is pro-inflammatory yeah. um, as well as uh, having an improper 
uh, balance of nutrients, generally too much. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of this can be counteracted uh, by having a better bacterial balance in the gut, and that can be attained through uh, eating more vegetables, more fiber, and particularly use of uh, probiotics mm -hmm. and prebiotics. Um, and this can make a tremendous difference in health and regulating the endocannabinoid system. Things like exercise, yoga, and even massage have been shown to cause releases of endocannabinoids in the body. Finally, meditation is another activity that seems like it may have direct effects on the ECS. What this all ultimately tells us is that although the story of the ECS may have begun with cannabis, it certainly doesn't seem like it's going to end with cannabis. But we're faced with a major problem in our healthcare system currently. Well, one of many problems. And that's that many healthcare professionals are grossly undereducated regarding the endocannabinoid system. And many, if not most, medical schools around the world still don't teach about the endocannabinoid system, despite the immense progress and research that's occurred over the past 50 years or more. What's amazing to me at this point is for a system that's so fundamental mm -hmm. to how our bodies work, this is not, in <laughs> general, taught in medical yep. school. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody can go through medical school and learn nothing about cannabis or except perhaps it's a alleged addiction potential. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's highly likely they won't learn anything about the endocannabinoid system, despite the fact that CB1 is the most abundant <laughs> G-protein coupled receptor in the brain, exceeding uh, the number of all the neurotransmitter receptors yep. put together. Uh, so obviously, it's really fundamental to how humans work. So it's obvious that there's a major education effort needed if our healthcare system is going to start incorporating the endocannabinoid system into the way that it functions. And it's clear by now that because the ECS is tied to so many things in the body and serves such a foundational role in regulating health, ignoring the ECS when trying to affect positive changes to health could be profoundly foolish. Now let's review what we've learned. The endocannabinoid system is a relatively new concept. The basic pieces of the ECS were not discovered until the late 1980s and early 1900s, and the definition of the ECS keeps expanding the more that it's studied. The endocannabinoid system is much more than CB1 and CB2 receptors, or anandamide and 2-AG. There are all sorts of endocannabinoids in the body and all sorts of receptors that endocannabinoids, as well as exogenous cannabinoids like THC and CBD, interact with. THC and CBD affect the ECS in very different ways. While THC mimics the behavior of anandamide and interacts with both CB1 and CB2 receptors directly, CBD hardly interacts with cannabinoid receptors at all, and instead affects things like vanilloid, adenosine, serotonin, and PPAR gamma receptors. CBD does indirectly stimulate cannabinoid receptors by stimulating the production of endocannabinoids and limiting the activity of enzymes that would normally break those endocannabinoids down. The ECS is affected by all sorts of other things besides cannabis. Many foods can affect the ECS directly, and additionally things like exercise, yoga, massage, and even meditation can affect the ECS, although much more research is needed to better understand these effects and how they affect health. There is a severe ignorance about the ECS facing our medical institutions currently, 
The ECS is rarely taught about in medical schools, and many healthcare professionals are ill-equipped to think critically about the ECS, despite the fact that the ECS is a critical part of human physiology. Now, we'll be revisiting the concept of the endocannabinoid system many times throughout this podcast, which is why I wanted to make sure to go ahead and cover some of the basics about it in these early episodes. It's impossible for me to really dive into the nuts and bolts of the ECS in a couple of short episodes, but we'll start teasing out these complexities of the ECS, including the ways it may be connected to various diseases and health conditions, in future episodes and future seasons. None, none of this stuff is simple. Uh, there's a problem trying to translate this into lay terms mm -hmm. because uh, the foundation is so broad uh, in the endocannabinoid system and the details uh, can be so extensive. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really defies simple explanations. And uh, to be fair, that makes it very tough for the average physician to be able to grab a hold of this when their schedule has them seeing a patient every 15 yep. minutes. It's just not amenable to providing uh, good education to the patient about anything, let alone something so complex as uh, medical treatment with cannabis or the, the endocannabinoid system. One of the big takeaways from my discussions with Dr. Rousseau and Dr. Spellman about the endocannabinoid system is that our struggle to wrestle with the complexities of the ECS are really reflective of our struggle to understand the vast complexities of biology itself. Despite all of the research that's been done to date, we still only have knowledge about a small sliver of the big picture, and we really have to maintain some humility regarding that fact. I really like the saying, the more we know, the more we know we don't know. And I think this is very true for cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, as well as a lot of other things in life. And with that, I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Thanks so much for listening. Stay curious and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me for interviews that helped construct not just this episode, but other episodes throughout the season. To check out the citations for this episode, and there are plenty, you can check out the show notes by visiting cacpodcast.com. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. If you like what we're doing here and want to support the show, please consider supporting us by liking and sharing this episode with your friends and family. You can also choose to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash naturallearningenterprises, where you can get access to the full-length guest interviews, behind-the-scenes content, and a lot more. You can also connect with Curious About Cannabis on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth, because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect them.